Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam Levinter. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. This is E2, where we speak to all kinds of entrepreneurs, creators, and pioneers doing amazing things in business and beyond. And today we are rewinding back to an episode that we aired about a year ago with Michael Hyatt. Michael is a co-founder at Blue Cat Networks, which sold to Madison Dearborn Partners for a reported $400 million. And in this episode, Michael and I cover a ton of ground, including lessons from his experience founding and growing Blue Cat, firing himself as a CEO, the birth and sales cycle of companies and capital, entrepreneurship with a sibling, his perspective on money, finding one's purpose, and so much more. Anyway, hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. So let's get to it. Here again is Mike Hyatt. Blue Cat, so founded in 2001, correct? Right. Delivers enterprise DNS solutions to customers. For listeners that are not familiar with the whole software space and what an enterprise DNS provider does, just give a brief kindergarten version of Blue Cat's offering and the types of clients that you guys service. So Blue Cat was our second software company we built. And we were in the business or are in the business of going into large companies and putting in network infrastructure and security in the kind of the, in the idea of DNS, enterprise DNS. So imagine that we know about everything that's connected to your network and we hand out those IP addresses and we allow a security layer on there to tell you if the device is behaving badly. And then we can shut that device down. Mm -hmm. What's the name of the first software company? The first software company we started was in the 90s, got out of school called Diadem, D-Y-A-D-E-M. It was an engineering software company. And so we built that and eventually sold that. And then we built Blue Cat and we sold that to Madison Dearborn last year. And I actually remain as a actually a good size shareholder and a and on the board still. Okay. And when you say we, this is you and your brother Richard, correct? What were your roles in each of those respective businesses? So it was I guess we're really fortunate. I was fortunate to have a brother like Richard because Richard was again, I don't know if speaking past tense so much, but is a is a brilliant software developer and I was pretty good at sales. So mm. he was the kind of the classic CTO tech guy and I was the sales guy. And you know, if you can you can squeeze those two things together into a single human. It kind of works really well, right? So as you guys grew, you said you, so you sold Diadem and then obviously you sold Blue Cat more recently. Were you juggling both these companies together? Like how did that all work prior to the first exit? There, 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 there was a time. The, the short answer is, is that it, it was, it was challenging because there was a time when we were kind of running both, but then we put a CEO in charge of Diadem guy named Kevin North, who did a brilliant job. And then we eventually put a guy in charge of Blue Cat named Michael Harris, who is doing a brilliant job. And one of the tricks to building a business is that we were never shy about hiring amazing people and letting them take charge and doing really well that way. I mean, one way you can make a lot of money is just hire people better than you to make you a lot of money. Let me ask you about that. When your business is mature and of a certain size, and you think it's the right time to go and look for a CEO to replace you, what is the process by which a senior executive might want to start to hunt? And how did you guys find Mike Harris as a fit? So being able to fire yourself is a really important thing. And and it's a very uh, cathartic thing to take yourself out of a seat. For, first off, I just want to talk a little bit about, you know, being a CEO or being a founding CEO. It's a very lonely experience and it's a tough experience. And it's also your job is to kind of be a bit lonely and your job is to ask why. And you're also, your job is to kind of have uncomfortable conversations and consistently. And, you know, over like a decade, that gets grading. You get good at it. But I mean, sometimes you want to take a breather and then you ask yourself the question, am I the person to take the company to the next level? And if you can fire yourself and put in someone better and then the shareholders never does better, including you, then you can probably do it. The really interesting thing about Mike Harris was I realized that I couldn't make anybody the CEO of Blue Cat. They had to make themselves the CEO. So Mike Harris was just sold a company, a public company in Toronto, and he wanted to come on to Blue Cat. And we, we met for coffee a number of times, and it was a bit of a dating process. And when he was ready to join, he's, I said, look, I, I can't make you the CEO of Blue Cat, but why don't you come in as a senior vice president and everybody can report to you. And in six months, if everybody kind of thinks you're the CEO, then you can have the job. Because he had to go and make himself the CEO. 
So it was really kind of interesting. And at like six months of the day, I sent an email out to the staff and I said, hey, everybody, you know, it's been going really great with Mike Harris. I'm going to step back and be the exec chairman. He's going to be the CEO going forward. And the response was beautiful. It was a non-event in the company. People were like, well, I thought he was the kind of the CEO anyways. And that's exactly what you want to have happen, which is this, he made himself the CEO. I didn't make him that. People just, just kind of gave him that respect. And I think that that's what happens with leaders in general. They make themselves those positions. They teach people how to treat them. And then it works or it doesn't. So sounds like a really good six-month audition, right? Mm-hmm. And so he's in the seat. Now you're, you've given him the reins. What did he bring to the table to Blue Cat that you think you didn't? That's a great question. I think he brought a lot of very strong operational experience. I think that founders, I, if, they, if I were to kind of group all the founders I know into a room, I think we're all a little crazy. I think we're emotional. I think we're fighters. I think we do the ridiculous. I think that we're the kind of people who, you know, stand up in our bedroom and say, I'm going to create a big company. And if you actually think about the odds against you, it's kind of crazy. It's, it's literally kind of crazy. The idea, I mean, if you actually realized how few companies ever get over a million and then 10 million revenue and then a hundred, like the, the, it goes astronomically down. If you just set mm-hmm. the bar at like 10 million, it's very, very low. And, and if you actually knew what the odds were against you, most people wouldn't do it. And that's probably why they don't try it. And the ones that do have to be a little nuts and a little emotional. And then, you know, you, you grow as a founder and everything else, but when your company gets to a certain size, you have to bring in a kind of operational excellence. And then you have to ask yourself a question, am I the operational excellence person? Would I hire me to be that person right now? And I didn't feel like after, after over a decade of building Blue Cat, I was the person to take it to where it is now, you know, which is, is a pretty big company. And I felt it'd be better for the shareholders, and better for people to put in someone to you know, work for me at the board level that could really run the company. And I was absolutely correct. I mean, he's done an incredible job. And being able to step back, you know, without any ego and letting someone be the person is is really the right thing to do for everybody involved. And but the same thing is that Mike Harris, as an example, he's not a founder guy. He's not a guy to start a company, right? Mm-hmm. He's not going to do the first 10, 20 million in revenue. That's that's not his thing. His thing is, you know, big company, acceleration, operational excellence, driving it towards an IPO, big, big exit. Like that's his thing, right? So that's why the compliment works so well. Yeah, it's interesting. We just had somebody on the podcast talk about how, in his opinion, entrepreneurs, it's a very rare breed to have an entrepreneur that's good at starting something, scaling something, and then optimizing something. Right. And it takes a very self-aware entrepreneur to understand that and then know where their strengths lie. You mentioned the growth of the company. And I want to ask you about that. How many employees did Blue Cat have at its peak? What's at its peak now? I think we have 450. And okay, 450. So on the way to 450, what were some of the challenges or the toughest moments when you were CEO, or even when Mike, Mike was CEO, Mike Harris, in terms of managing a team of that size? You know what? It is, if you speak you know, like if, wow, I, I could tell you that even backing up in history, that the biggest mistakes I made were in HR. The best things I ever did was hire great people. And the worst things I ever did was hire the wrong person. Every mistake I made was in hiring because I just didn't put the right people in at the right times to do the right things. I also didn't value things properly. I made mistakes early on. Like I didn't understand how important HR was, right? This idea of having a vice president of people and then understanding how to build a culture. I kind of was so driven towards getting sales and and closing deals. And I would do that at all costs in the beginning. And, and it certainly made us successful, but I didn't really understand how to build a culture properly. And I think that cost me a lot. And it wasn't until we got this great person running HR at Blue Cat that she taught me how to kind of build a better culture and get people to really buy into it. And that was kind of the bigger issues we had. And And why I'm talking about this is you really have to figure out how to bring people into the company that are exceptionally motivated and driven to build this culture. People after a certain dollar figure, you know, aren't motivated by money. I mean, we know that about people in general Mm -hmm. and people in general want autonomy and purpose. They want more than money Mm -hmm. and you have to offer people the ability to create, to be creative and to do something more than their job or if not just becomes route. And then they start clocking out and all that. Everybody checks out of a company that you just have to do things by route. So you, you really have to figure out how to, you know, tap into creative juices, get people to be motivated and and be driven into this big, big idea. And then 
you know, answering big questions about your company, like, well, why are we here? Why are we doing what we're doing? Where are we going? And why should you be a part of this? And what hill are we climbing? And there's a whole inspirational process. And I think that that a company is this kind of living, breathing, organic thing. And whether you like it or not, your company has a union. You know, whether you have a union or don't have a union, you have a union. And you have to figure out how to work within that organic thing. And I could have been I could have been so much more efficient if I understood how to build culture early. I was just, I think, too driven for sales. Okay. So if you're an entrepreneur with a growing business and you don't have the budget to bring on this senior head of HR person and you've got to do the hiring yourself, what advice could you give to that executive to just get better? at hiring, getting the right people in the right seat, so to speak, getting people to get motivated or buy in. Anything that you can share on that in front? Yeah. I mean, look, hiring, there's a great, there's a great saying, which is A players bring A players and B players bring D players. Hmm. And one of the ways you know if you hire a great leader to work with you, let's say you bring in a VP sales or a chief marketing officer or whatever you want to bring in in the beginning. One of the ways you know they're excellent is that if someone else follows them, you know, I tell people that all great leaders can bring in three great people with them. If someone can't bring in three great people, then I'm not sure they are great because you could actually, if I just met the three people that they're going to bring in and never meet that leader, I could tell you if they're a good leader. Does that make sense? Like you leader, uh, leaders bring armies, people follow people. And what I'll first say out to any entrepreneur out there and any leader and any business is you'll never know what kind of leader you are until you leave a company and see who will follow you blindly to your next company, who will just follow you. And you'll be surprised, and you'll only know then is if you really were great and people want to work with you. And it doesn't matter where you go, what you do. There's entrepreneurs in the city that have startups that are that I really admire. And as soon as they start a company, I write them a blind check. Like I'm like, I don't care what you do, I'm just giving you money. Because I just believe in them so much. It's that kind of thing. So if I would do one thing and I couldn't afford an HR person, I would hire somebody that, first of all, that I liked, that I really believe that my gut said, I would want to invite them to a barbecue. I want to hang out with them. I like them as people. I think they're decent and honest and kind. And I believe that they're going to do the right things. And I would kind of have this kind of overarching idea in my company, which is we have a no a-hole rule. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how many times companies hire people that are, you know, a-holes that are that are great on paper like they have great resumes they've worked all these places they 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 know the answer they're tough they're all this but they just you know lead by fear or angry or whatever and their resume is good and their traction is being kind of good and i guess the results being kind of good but they bring in this kind of you know rotten appleness to the company and so you got to be really careful about adding that in to the company you got to be so mindful of the culture you create early because I can't tell you enough how that changes your efficiency model. So, you know, you've got to hire people that you like first, and then that can do the job. What was the culture like early for you? Like when you were, I don't know, arbitrarily, let's say 20 employees in size. And before you brought on this head of HR, what was the culture like? The culture was just kind of gritty and gutsy and sales at all costs kind of, it was fun. Mm -hmm. There was levity. There was everything else. We were like, you know, the quintessential no money, you know, selling, like pushing as hard as we could. We'd go to trade shows and we get bigger booths than we ever deserved to make ourselves peacock and look bigger than we were. Does that work? Is that a good strategy? It can work. It <laughs> costs you a lot of money, but okay. we'd spend $50,000 on a booth at a big show and everybody thought we were like a hundred million dollar company, <laughs> we, you know, a million in revenue in the earliest days. And yeah, sure. That does work in a way, but then you got to get traction with that. Right. But look, I mean, I would say that, you know, I was obsessed with with sales and probably should have been a little more obsessed with culture earlier. But look, it worked, you know. I also wanted to prove that we could scale the business, right? So we actually put off raising capital for a long time. So we were pretty gritty and gutty, you know, gutsy. Yeah. So about that, about the raising capital piece, in terms of raising very little VC money relative to size, what was the mindset when sort of the first real checks were dangled as viable options for further growth and you were thinking like this isn't going to happen? Well, I have a very different view than most people do today. I was very I was always terrified of raising money in the beginning because I felt like why do I want to sell part of my company to somebody else and why do I want a seat at the t- somebody else's seat at the table? Why do I want to give up control? I never wanted to give up control and it died in blue cat Richard and I never gave up control of the, all the 20 years we ran software companies. And that was quintessential to us. We wanted the sovereign right to run our company a certain way mm-hmm. today. 
I find too many entrepreneurs raise money and then have a rooftop party about their raise. I don't know what anybody's celebrating about doing a raise. I, I get the dinner thing. That's okay. But I'm not sure I would celebrate raising capital. I would celebrate you know, getting on a great senior hire or landing a big client or having a great quarter or having a great fiscal year. But I do not understand the raising of money as success. I feel it's like, okay, but now the clock started. Okay, because now, as soon as you raise venture capital money, you are committing to sell your company. And that's a hard thing for people to digest. Like, think about what I just said. You raise capital from investors, you are committing to having an exit. Whether you like it or not, that's why they're giving you money, right? Because they want a liquidity event. Mm -hmm. So whether you're buying them out in a secondary, taking it public, selling the entire business, but you are selling this business in part and or in whole, and you've got to understand what you're signing up to. So I, we put off raising capital, and we were so focused on sales. And I think people should be more focused on trying to get their sales off the ground earlier and trying to see how they can shoestring things and bootstrap a lot more than they think they should. Everybody seems to want one, two, or $3 million to get to an MVP. I'm not sure they actually need that. And also, they give up a tremendous percentage of their company, 30 40 50% in the first two years, but I'm not sure they had to do that. So it's interesting, like, why is it so sexy for people to celebrate the raise? Like, I've got my own theory on it. I'm sure it's driven largely by the front page of TechCrunch or Mashable or whatever. What's your theory on it? Well, first off, there's more money sloshing around today than there's ever been. We've had historically low interest rates, even though they're rising. So that means that the price of money has been low for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And fun, there, I, I've never seen more funds around like every day there's bazillions of funds starting there's tons of liquidity there's tons of money so money is actually the, the access to money in the past decade is way way more than it's ever ever been in the history of venture capital there is so many venture capital firms at every single stage there's private equity there's there's places to get debt facilities there's quasi debt there's tons of ways to get capital so i think first off getting capital is not that difficult and then you have to ask the question where do you get it from and was that a good deal I also think that people are lured that they raise this capital and then everything is set. I think it's very daunting. I mean, like think about some companies that are raising 10, 20, 30, 40 million. You have to actually return a huge amount of, you know, shareholder value for that money. I mean, you know, when 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 you go out and raise 10 million bucks, for example, that could have been the most expensive thing you've ever done or the cheapest thing you've ever done, right? I mean, if you don't get your revenues up significantly on that, and a lot of companies don't. They burn through six or eight million of it and had, didn't get a big jump in revenue. Mm -hmm. It just cost you a tremendous percentage of your company. You didn't get anywhere. So I kind of tell entrepreneurs, you should raise money, but treat it like your last raise, you know, and really be mindful of this money. And don't treat it with, you know, get on the burn trim that fast. I mean, I run into companies that will raise $2 million now and be saying, uh, in three months, I'm going to go out and try to raise my next round. <laughs> I'm like, what? You know, because they're going to take six months to raise it. So they, they're on this kind of constant election cycle, this constant race cycle. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, why do you feel you constantly have to raise money? Like, what about scaling this business and, and iterating it? You know, I just feel like almost raising money for some people has been a business model. And I think that I think the average entrepreneur is left with 7% of their company on the exit. And I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised mm -hmm. it's not three based on what I'm seeing. And but just do the math of your business. Let's say, for example, you keep raising all this money and you're left with 10% of your business and you sell your company for $100 million. And let's say all the shares are the same value, so you get $10 million. Okay, that's great. But let's say you did this a little more carefully and you were able to hold on to half your company and you sell your company for $30 million and you get 15. Well, it's way easier to sell your company usually for $30 million than 100 Like, way easier. Mm -hmm. And you got more money, right? So... I think some people have to do the math a little better. You mentioned earlier about you writing blank checks for people who are great leaders. So right. be beyond the obvious, you know, great character, good leadership, all of that stuff, what are like what's unique from a strategic standpoint about these businesses that you're investing? What do you look for? Well, look, the number one thing I look for, and if you if you look at stuff I've done on, on the Dragon's Den or the podcast, The Pitch, that I'm on, or you see the investments I do in general, the first thing I look at is who I'm investing in. And I have to like the people. First off, when you invest in an early stage company, the only thing you can bet on is the management team and generally the CEO and their ability to pivot. I guarantee everybody you invest into early stage is going to pivot. Mm -hmm. I don't care if they're Facebook, Google, or whatever. There's going to be a pivot. 
and you're betting on their ability to pivot successfully. Sometimes the pivot's really small. Sometimes the pivot's like 3% to the left or right, but it's important that pivot can occur. So you're betting on their ability to pivot. And then if you can get comfortable with the person and their ability to pivot, then you look at the market and you think, can they actually scale this thing? If I've actually made investing mistakes, sometimes I've, I found in my past, I've really, really, really respected the CEO and hated the business they're going into. And I said, no. And that was my mistake because they ended up pivoting to somewhere really big. And I should have bet on the CEO. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I should have kept to my theory. So I go person first, then market, and then I see if there's the fit. But in general, you know, it's pretty easy to bet on someone who's already sold a company who's a repeat entrepreneur and someone you trust and you think is great. And you have a, you have a relationship with, and they're going to be candid with you. Can you give an example of one of those businesses that had a successful pivot that you missed? Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, it happens all the time. I mean, like, I, I mean, I, the, the thing, the thing about investing is that you, there are plenty, there are plenty of deals where, you know, I have a lineup of deals where I should have invested, but I just didn't know it was going to work that way. Like for, let me give you an example. Here's a company that didn't pivot, but I was an early investor in Shopify mm-hmm. and I bought into Shopify. I did. I was part of Georgian Partners and we bought in and I could have even bought even more, but I could never have guesstimated that I bought in when they were in the hundreds of millions. I could never have guesstimated they were going to be 20 billion in value. Mm-hmm. I thought they'd be maybe a billion or two, but I could never in my wildest dreams see it. And I'm so impressed with them, by the way. It's the most remarkable tech company in Canada in, in gosh knows how long. But you, sometimes you can't see. Like, I don't, I'm not sure anybody could have, right? How explosive some companies could be. What do you think is the hidden DNA of Shopify that people miss? I think uh, Toby and Harley have a relentless push on culture and they have like business coaches and they've been able to create an ecosystem, which is truly incredible. Like they really have. They First, you got to give Shopify a lot of kudos for actually nailing a business problem and doing it that that was just out there. This ability to build shops really easily and, and transact online and make it so anybody can have their own business online. It just sounds like you could have done that before Shopify, but they just did it so much better. They just came in with a better red wagon, better price, better everything. And, you know, it was amazing how they just extrapolated so much profit in that pool that most people would have said, you know, I know people who passed up on Shopify when they were like, like literally starting because it just sounded like, you know, e-commerce, you're going to build a site for e-commerce sites. Like they didn't make a lot of, it just sounded like, how could that work? Right. But they, you know, they nailed it and they found the secret to Shopify and actually any company that is extremely well, it starts off with this idea of what I call profit in the pool. Imagine you have this pool and there's a ton of profit in it. The rule of that pool is that you could only get into it, but you would never be allowed into it if anybody knew how much profit there was there. So if everybody knew how much, how big Shopify would get, Shopify could never have existed because other people would have done it, but they made a bet on something where no one else really believed there was profit. Do you know what I mean? So they're, they, they jumped into a pool where they kind of, in a way, disagreed with everybody else that they were like, no, no, there's money in here. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, you can't, like, there's no money in there. And they were, they were right and everybody else was wrong. So they jumped into something and ex- exploited a massive profit pool and are doing it successively well with their growth rates, which I think are still up in the 70, 80s or 90%, which are incredible. And they were able to extract profit out of this pool that everybody else would have disagreed with them. Yeah, and you'd mentioned the whole pivoting thing too. I think they started as a snowboarding solution or, or an e-com they, solution they, for snowboard equipment or something like they that. Were, they were, yeah, they were doing that because I think Toby started it that way. Yeah, that's right. But I mean, they, they, they success. I mean, look at their last thing. They're jumping into doing, I think, marijuana sales for the government or something, just mm-hmm. another smart idea uh, <laughs> for them. And listen, I'm still a shareholder and I'm very happy. And, but they're a company that if you jump into and you spend any time with some of the guys that run that company and, and girls, they, they really, they have an incredible internal dynamic in the culture and they spend a lot of time on culture. And, and, and it's not just that they have a great business. They actually live that culture as well. Okay, so want to go back to the business and family thing for for a sec. So you and your brother Richard have been in business together for thirty years or so, if I've got my math right. About twenty five. Yeah, twenty five. Yeah. You've got a clearly you've got a strong sense of what makes family and business work to have that kind of longevity. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs thinking about entering into a partnership with a family member? Well, okay, so here's how it works. It can be the best or the worst thing in the world. I, I never get, I get so sad when I see these kind of families, these iconic Canadian families sue each other and we know who they are and there's like three or four families, but they do it intergenerationally. So maybe it gets tougher when you go through generations. Mm-hmm. But 
So it can be a really devastating thing because no one hurts you like family, right? Mm -hmm. But when it works, it is so powerful. And let me tell you why it's so powerful. Because building a company is extremely hard no matter what it is. But let's say you, you start a company with your best friend. And you get into a huge fight with your best friend. And you call them some really bad names. And they call you some really bad names. And then you cool off. And you get together a day or two later. And you're like, hey, I'm sorry about that. And you say, I'm sorry. They say, I'm sorry. You shake hands. You hug. And you go and you have a beer. And everything's okay, right? It is okay, but it's kind of not. There's always that little scarring, that little scrape. But now I want you to imagine starting a company with your sister or your brother, and you call them worse names, and it's more heated, and you almost go to blows. And two hours later, it's over, and there's no scar. Like There's this thing that happens with siblings, the resiliency that you cannot get from friendship. You cannot get it. And it is just something that's genetic within us that there's a love there that that extra that goes beyond that you can have in a friendship. So if you can use that and weaponize that to your advantage to build a company, it is very resilient because you're going to go through awful times in a decade of building a company. So you need that resiliency. So when it works, it really works. And, and what Richard and I did well is that he was the tech guy and I was the business guy. And we didn't claim that we could like go to each other's realms and own it. Although he was very good in sales, you know, I, but I wasn't in tech, mm -hmm. but you know, it worked really well. So this idea of resiliency and this idea of, you know, sticking to our swim lanes worked extremely well. And we're just fortunate that we weren't both tech guys or both business guys. Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Toulousma. I'm a writer and emotional intelligence coach and the host of Humanize with Blue Toulousma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on ElectroCast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. ElectroCast. Did you ever have disputes that made one, one or the other sort of think about resigning? All the time. Really? Yeah, I think wow. in the first couple of years, I think I resigned in writing a few times. Yeah, <laughs> in writing. <laughs> I hope. Oh, sure. You know, when I was twenty-four or something. But I listen. Absolutely. Yeah. Horrible times. Terrible times. Yelling, screaming. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it, absolutely. It's very, very hard to build a business, and it's so hard you almost want to forget about it. It's it's pretty bad. And you know, I mean, the anxiety, the sleepless nights, the heart. Like it was really hard. I was like twenty-five, twenty-six years old at a CEO. And everybody I hired was older than me. And then I'd they'd be having lunch on a picnic table. I'd walk up to say hi and everybody would go quiet and I didn't understand it. And it's just because I'm the CEO and it's still, but you know, it was, everything was always awkward and hard and it was a tough learning experiences, right? I, I had grade nine business. I never, you never had a brand or money or raise capital. We didn't know what to do. And it was just like the school of hard knocks, right? So it wasn't, there was no guide for this, you know? And in the nineties, there, in those times when the dog, walking up to the dot com boom, there was really very little in the way of there's no meetups. There was no, you know, even Wi-Fi. There was no, those business models. They're all the things that you were thinking that you use now and ways you can get access to information, how to build a company, this podcast, anything, nothing existed. There was no mentorship and it was none of this, right? It was just like, uh, you know, get on the phone and sell. And it was just very difficult in the early. It's the wild west of software. That's right. Salesforce, just to give a name people are quite familiar with, I think founded around 1998, 99 or something. At a time when like nobody was thinking about CRM, nobody even knew what that was, no such thing as cloud computing, like different time. Well, you remember they had a very hard time because when they came out to go public in 0403, 0405, that kind of time period, they had this SaaS business model, but Wall Street didn't understand the recurring revenue model. They and a company called Taleo in Canada were both going public and they had to convince Wall Street that the SaaS model was more efficient and no one really believed it. And now that's all we do, right? So I want to ask you about the sale to Madison Dearborn beyond the price tag. Why was Madison a fit for you guys for Blue Cat? And what advice do you have that you could share with a business owner thinking about an exit in terms of finding the right type of acquirer? So it worked out so well with Madison. I am, you know, I'm not just saying this because I'm working with them now, but I love these guys and they are, they were straight up you know, very honest. At Madison Dearborn, for people who don't know, have been around since the early 80s, and they're one of the original private equity firms. And they're located on Madison and Dearborn Street in Chicago, and that's how they got their name. Mm -hmm. And they have the same two founding CEOs. 
And they're very upfront and very honest. And what I didn't like before meeting them is a lot of private equity companies would come in and say, hey, we want to buy Blue Cat. Well, they flash a big number up and then they want to trade you down later. So we just got into this path of never, never speaking to private equity firms. Our biggest competitor, which was public, got bought by a very large private equity firm. So we kind of knew that we were going to be next because we were number two in the world like and number two by a significant lead. So people started to approach us and we were kind of like not interested and it wasn't until we got a phone call from the guy who actually, the banker that sold my first company, he said, Michael, I got a company that's going to buy Blue Cat. And I basically pretty much hung up the phone on him. I said, don't even bother. I don't even have this conversation. He says, no, you got to have a dinner. And I agreed to have a dinner, but I, I we were very skeptical about it. And it took a couple of dinners. It took a couple of dates to figure out that this could actually be a very good partnership. And we actually, you know, you're supposed to run a process and, and keep everybody in tension and have multiple bids. But we actually said, look, this is how much we'll do the deal for. If you're going to hit this bid, we'll focus on you. We want to stay in the company. We want to do this. We want to do that. And they literally paid the same number that they said they would in the beginning at the close, which is very rare. And normally private equity firms afterwards come in and they you know, fire people and create more profit and do all this stuff. But they were like, hey, we need to grow faster, hire more. And they did. And, they, and really nothing's changed, but we've added kind of a layer of operational excellence since then. They brought in a ton of help operationally, fiscal-wise, to run a company better. We, we, our revenues are up, our growth is up, our products are better. Like Everything's gone better in, in the first even 14 months. And it's been an incredible experience. And I think we're very fortunate because that's not the experience for a lot of people after selling to private equity. Mm-hmm. And it's also who we were dealing with. Like We really got to know the partners there. And we were very fortunate to have some just really good people that I find that are actually become my friends and I speak to all the time. And now I invest in their deals as well. And I'm making it sound too good, but it's kind of too good. It actually worked out really well. And I would only tell people it's who you're selling to. It's it's the people that you're going to be working with. And do you want to be stuck in a foxhole with them? And do you want to go along for this ride? But it's you really have to be ready to do this kind of thing. And selling a company is a very, very difficult and tedious process. I mean, there's a lot of documents. There's, you know, if people have gone through it, it's a lot harder than you think. There are, like, it just seems like there's a one mile long of documents to get through and due mm-hmm. diligence. But, mm-hmm. you know, I was very proud to get through that because it's kind of amazing when you go through that much due diligence and they tell you your company's clean. You kind of feel really good. You're like, well, thank you. You know, it's like kind of like... You know, you feel like, you know, you did all this work and somebody says, yeah, you actually are worth this much. And I'm like, wow, that's that's great. How long was that process for you guys, the due diligence? Because we were over the Christmas period, it took over four months. But, mm-hmm. you know, typically you can do it faster than that. But, you know, we weren't in a rush to close and they weren't in a rush. And we were all we were always willing to not do the deal. And I think so were they because we weren't there wasn't like we, we were we were always profitable. We weren't running out of cash. We weren't doing a raise. There was no. But, you know, four months and actually, you know what, that could be average. I mean, sometimes it's sometimes takes six to nine months, but and some people do something in three weeks, but ours was a little more have a cadence. So it sounds like all good things since the acquisition. You mentioned Mm -hmm. that sometimes it doesn't work out when a PE comes into a business post acquisition and doesn't always end so well. What are some of the common themes that you say or that you've seen, excuse me, on the other side in terms of a deal not working out? Look, people have to understand when you sell to a strategic, like let's say you sell your tech company to, I don't know, Cisco or Microsoft or Google, they see things very differently from a private equity firm. When you sell your company to a big company, they absorb you into their machine. So once they pay a number for you, which is typically better than anybody else, they will just absorb you into their sales force and sell your widgets, right? I mean, they just take what you do and then put it into their machine. So they're not looking for something that a private equity company is looking for. When a private equity company buys you, they're going to take you, they're going to grow you a lot more, and then they're going to sell you for a multiple. So you are buying into a second sale. So that's why I kept shares in BlueCat because it's, it's kind of the art of selling your company twice. And But you know, and private equity companies are less emotional and it's all about what's your growth, what's your EBITDA, and what we're going to sell you for in five years. And it's just a very straight kind of business deal. So... Blue Cat being Canadian, Madison Dearborn being out of Chicago, I want to ask you about the question of selling to a U.S. buyer versus potentially a a Canadian private equity company. Do you think that sales of Canadian companies to U.S. firms impacts the Canadian entrepreneurial ecosystem at all in a negative way? No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, look, the the way it works is that 
you start a company, you have investors, any company that's started in Toronto and that has VCs, VCs put money in because they want an exit. So let's say you start a company, you start scaling, you raise 20, 30 million, and there's an exit, and they all get three times their money back. That's the law of the jungle for movement of cash. So we need companies to start here, raise capital, bring capital in, capital builds business, and then it's got to sell. That capital flows back to GP, it flows back to the LPs, and then it starts again through kind of like a circle of life of money. So understand something that the fortunate part for Canada is that we just happen to be sitting right on top of the largest economy in the world. And not only the largest economy in the world, an economy that's relatively business aggressive. And it's an incredible advantage for Canada mm-hmm. because we get to sit on top of a country that's have a three hour time zone difference that's ready to buy. I mean, think about it. The United States has a mu- as much purchasing power than all 27 EU countries, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's it, and they're both kind of, you know, 20, 18, 20 trillion ish. And we get to sit on top of that. We're a small economy, you know, you know, a trillion and a half dollars or two trillion, but we're sitting on top of we're a relatively small you know, currency, small economy, small population distributed across a very large landmass. And we get to sell, we get to interact at a border and the largest trading partner with the largest economy in the world. And it's a huge advantage to us. And I think it's great when we can bring in U.S. capital and, and move that and ecosystem. And, you know, when I started, if you said you're from Toronto in the 90s, they, everybody would think it's really weird. I mean, I look out now, I'm looking at my office window, I see all these, you know, towers built. There was none of these here. I mean, in the past 10 years, we've built hundreds of towers in Toronto. We have this incredible real estate scene, and that's all happening because of the business scene. I mean, we have tremendous amount of economy happening here. And that only occurs because capital is being raised, money is flooding in, companies are selling, and that circle of life is happening. There is nothing wrong with building and selling your company, and there's nothing wrong with it being American, and there's nothing wrong with it being Canadian. But I assure you, if we don't bring in foreign capital and we don't have this birth and selling cycle that everybody would be in trouble. Okay. Mindful of time, I want to ask you a few personal questions just to get some perspective into 40 under 40 stuff, the, the, the Dragon's Den. I think you're an entrepreneur in residence now at Blake's. Is it Blake's? Yeah, the law firm Blake's, yeah. All of the speaking stuff. Like These are obviously like terrific things for one's ego. How do you pro- <laughs> like? How do you personally process all of this and how do you keep yourself or keep things sort of in perspective? I don't believe the highs and I don't believe the lows. And I, I don't get wrapped up in, in, in much. I also have this idea in life, and I'll tell you what my kind of mantra is personally. I like making money, but I don't value it. I don't, I don't really value money. And so a lot of people have said to me, well, since the Blue Cat sale, what have you bought? I actually mm-hmm. haven't bought anything. And it's not because, you know, no other reason I'm not trying to be cheap. It's just that I don't really care. I, you know, I do my own laundry. I do my own shopping. I, you can see me walking around Yorkville, going to Loblaws, carrying you know my groceries home. I like to cook. I don't go out that much. And I'm just the same person I always was. I grew up with no money, so I find it still jarring to spend money. Does that make any sense? Like I ha- I'm still the 100%. same guy. Mm-hmm. I go to Winners, and that's where I buy my underwear. And I go to Costco because I like buying the meats, and I ziplock them. And it's not because I'm cheap. It's just that's, that's how I've always lived. I still find it very strange to buy a business class ticket, and I actually don't do it. I use my upgrade credits. And I know this all sounds weird and I don't know why I do it. I just, you know, I remember going to school in grade seven and getting made fun of because I didn't have the right clothes because my parents couldn't afford it. Like, and I just, you know, I could never afford when skateboards were popular. I could never afford buying um, a $200 skateboard. That was a huge amount of money. You know, I could never afford that. And so I think I went out with a vengeance when I was getting out of school that I just wanted to have enough money so I could just be okay. I was a very sick child. And I had one kidney. So I spent the first 10 years of my life in hospital. I had a horrible time. Hmm. And I knew later in life that I might have to get a kidney. So I had this really weird and maybe bizarre idea that I may have to go buy a kidney. Because I'm not sure I could get it for my family. I'm not sure I wanted to ask. So I had this really weird idea that I may have to spend 250000 going overseas and getting myself an organ at some time in my life. So I better go make money because I may have to go buy a kidney. I know this sounds really weird, but that was how my thinking was growing up. So I kind of came out with a vengeance because I may have to make some money to buy a kidney. And I had to like make money because I didn't want to be poor. So I was just driven like nothing else. I had no safety net. I had no parents. My parents were wonderful, but they didn't have money. Mm-hmm. And I had nothing backing me. I had, you know, nothing more than my science degree from Western. I couldn't get into med school. And it was a recession when I came out. And it was just a lot of fight. And who I am today is still the same guy I was in grade seven or when I was in my 20s when I came out. And now that my brother and I have done so well, 
prospectively, you know, I think we still in a way, I still walk into Loblaws and when I see Passive on sale, I buy four boxes. I do what you do. Like I just mm-hmm. automatically do the same thing. I just, I don't know how to explain it. Has it gotten weird between family members outside of your family of origin, like with respect to like how successful you guys have become? Like has any of the dynamic changed in that regard? No. No, I, 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 I am actually very, very happy about that. I mean, like we had some family members that told us not to start businesses because we we're going to go bankrupt. And then when we, when we did really well, they just said nothing. But, you know, I, I understand what they were saying. They, they, I think they meant it with love in the beginning, but whatever. No, nothing's really changed. My friends are still the same people. But it's also because I think the way Richard and I go out in the world, right? So as I'm having this podcast with you, I'm wearing a $10 t-shirt and I'm wearing pants from Banana Republic that I just bought them and they were 48 bucks after being discounted twice. And I think that's kind of how we just kind of walk around, right? I mean, we're still, we don't approach the world. Like we don't approach our family with that or approach anybody like that. And no one would know we did well per se. You know, we don't kind of, you know, I, I lived at the Four Seasons for some time. And like, you know, when one guy would get the Aventador car, everybody would get one. (laughs) And I don't, I don't know what to say about that. Right. Besides the fact it's hard to drive that car because you're laying down. Like I, I think that we live just very modestly and we actually approach the world very modestly and humbly. And I think that's the way to do it still. And I think it's, I think we're just the same guys that we've always been. And if you ask me what my biggest challenge personally is right now, just be straight up with the listeners. I don't know what I want to do when I grow up. Hmm. I'm not actually sure what I'm supposed to do now. I don't, I, I, I know I can't stomach doing another startup startup because mm-hmm. that was a 21 year climb twice. And I think we've done that, those mountains. But I actually, I'm not entirely sure. So we go out, I, I go out and I give these talks and I, I love to connect with people around the world and, and I and invest in startups and I, and, I, and I love these conversations on podcasts and stuff like that. But, you know, you have to find purpose in your life at some point, you know, and when money doesn't become an issue anymore, then you have to start thinking, well, what are you going to do? And it becomes that a question like, you know, everybody asks that, well, if you win the lottery, would you just, you know, sleep on the beach all day? Well, I don't think you would. You'd be surprised. You'd be very surprised at how much you define yourself by who you are, what you do, who you're with, where you live. You say, hi, I'm so-and-so, and and this Mm -hmm. is what I do. And what you Mm -hmm. do defines a bit of your mental state and who you are. And people put you in a box and, oh, you're a lawyer, you're a doctor, you're a a CEO. And then when you take that away, it's a little strange, right? Do you know what I mean? How do you you answer that question now at, let's say, a dinner party or networking event? I've learned to just say, well, I built some software. When somebody says, well, what do you do, Michael? I just say, well, we built some software companies and I run a family office now. And we just invest in companies. I, I just have a little simple way to say we just have a family office and invest, you know, and then we don't really talk about we never mention anything in our backgrounds and stuff like that. And and, you know, we don't really talk about that. And and, you know, you just want to be kind of welcoming and open to other people's ideas and what they're doing and learn from people. And really, I can tell you, I'll tell you something. Look, money does really help you. It, it, it gives you nicer hotels and, and better flights and all the rest of it. But you know, it's pretty empty at a certain point. You know, all that really mattered in life was probably who you chose as a life partner and maybe three year friends. And do you have love and trust with your family? And, and the rest of it doesn't matter. I was with a really wealthy guy recently and I was, he looked at me and I was getting in the elevator to say goodbye. And he looked at me and he said, you know, you give it all away. Right. And I looked at him and he's like, whether you like it or not, well, which, which basically means when you die, you don't take it with you. Yeah. I know I'm getting a little preachy here, but I truly believe that the guy who's cleaning the bathroom stall right now at, at a fast food joint and I are going to the same place. I, I absolutely believe that. I believe we're all going to the same place. So there's no VIP lines. So all of this is kind of silly. And I, I find it actually a little useless. And I, I truly believe that, you know, you can do some good with your money in life. So Richard and I, for example, started a foundation and we take money out of this foundation and we give away, you know, money every year, but we invested it. So it actually makes a lot of money. So we give away more money, but we're allowed to do some really great things. Like we, you know, we, we just do a lot of really interesting things in women's health and medical and we fix people's teeth and we buy very ill children gifts and, and stuff like that and things that make us feel good and help. Right. But we, you can actually do some things that are really kind of cool if you want, um, that do help people that have challenges. You can do more things. And the other things we do is that we actually spend a lot of time giving advice to young entrepreneurs or or older entrepreneurs that are starting a business. And sometimes we can help them pivot. And most of the time, I would say nine out of 10 times, we don't invest or don't get involved, but 
because they don't need us or whatever, but we can help them do something and hire people. And, you know, we're part of the creative destruction lab at U of T. So we just get involved in a lot of companies that we don't invest in just to help and give back. And that's very fulfilling, right? In life. What advice would you give to a young entrepreneur looking for a mentor that's had a successful or set of successful exits like yourself? To try to find one? Like, yeah, uh, like if, if, if that young entrepreneur is, is seeking a mentor to help them directly with whatever they're doing. I would say that you should reach out to whoever you want, because if you don't, you already heard no anyways. So mm-hmm. reach out to whoever you want to begin with. But go ahead. But you should go into meeting your mentor first. If you want to go and see someone, understand their background and, and ask questions about their journey and get to know them. And the number one reason why someone who's had some exits or someone to be successful will work with you and be your mentor is that they like you. It's just if they like you and they want to help you. People help people that they like. People buy things from people they like. At the end of the day, if you're likable, they'll give you some of their time, right? But be respectful of that time. Be really respectful of that time because when I can tell you the only thing I have of value is my time. I can put 50, 100 grand in your business or whatever it is, but that's not a value. Value is my time, right? And And that's the hardest thing for me to give. And then I have to decide where I put that time and why I put that time. Okay. So being respectful of time, we've got a couple of minutes. I want to ask you quickly about your speaking stuff. You mentioned that you don't know what to do next. I mean, I've I've watched some of your talks. They're really, really intriguing and interesting. And you talk a lot about some cool themes like the end of driving, the end of utilities, the end of banking, medicine to some extent. Can you hit on one of these in the last couple of minutes? I think that the future we're walking into is going to be shockingly different. And the big picture is very, very simple. We are walking into a collision of a number of things. Here's what I think is going to happen. First off, money is cheap and it's going to remain cheap. So I think there's a lot of money to get things done. Capital is floating around. Even if interest rates spike a bit, money is cheap. I think energy is going to zero, dirt cheap, solar roofs, batteries are getting exponentially better energy is becoming cheap. And when you have cheaper energy, you get better machines. Whenever you have better machines, you get cheaper energy. So we have a lot of cheap money. We have cheap energy. I mean, a photoelectric volt, a photonic volt was 76 bucks in the 70s. Now it's a couple of bucks. I think it's going down to pennies. We're getting there. So cheap money, cheap energy. And then we have computing, I believe, is going to take another massive jump. We are, people say, oh, Moore's Law is slowing down, but it only slows down in these like micro S curves where you flatten at the top. I think we're about to jump into quantum computing. And although we haven't quite figured out quantum, we're about to go up billions of strength more. So if you have cheap money, cheap energy, a massive jump of computing, and then you bring in kind of two other concepts. One of the big ones is AI. And AI, if you collide that into the centerpiece that we're talking about, the first thing you need to understand is that artificial intelligence doesn't exist yet. Artificial narrow intelligence exists today, some very rudimentary things, Mm -hmm. but soon it's going to get ridiculously better. And the most interesting thing I can tell you about AI is that even with AI, true AI, general intelligence, the C3PO idea, this next Machina idea Mm -hmm. doesn't exist. What we have today is actually very shocking and it's growing quickly. And if I had to give a talk about AI, I'd have to update my talk twice a week because that's the amount of discoveries we're having. Mm -hmm. And And it's incredible what we're doing from we're jumping into these algorithms now that are better and better. But if you just follow the trend lines, cheap money, cheap energy, billions of fold of computer power going up, Moore's Law still kind of working, you know, and this idea of true AI coming into place and they hit this center together, that's all colliding in the center, our future is going to be shockingly different. And that, that speed up is happening within the speed up. And it's not like you can't predict the year 2100. I don't think we could predict the year 2040 anymore. I believe that the singularity, as Ray Kurzweil says, will occur. And I think things are going to get very, very strange. We're going to be able to place atoms in places. Medicine is going to become ridiculously incredible. Like 4,000 medical journals are published today. Our doctors can't keep up with that, but big data can. And we're going to be sequencing your genome, looking at all those studies per day. And a computer is going to say, hey, these two studies that year are going to result in these therapies just for you, just for your DNA. And we're going to 3D print you a medication for your genome. And we're going to place the atoms ourselves with this 3D printer and create you that drug just for you. And that's how good it's going to get. So we're going to live longer. We're going to be healthier. I believe the future is ridiculously better. I think the only problem we have is that we should be born tomorrow. There is no golden era in the past. You don't want medicine from even 2016 or 2017. You want it from any time in the future. Wars are going away. There's no war in the Western Hemisphere. 
Uh, nuclear stockpiles are down 90%. You know, IQ is raising per decade. Global poverty is going. There won't be any extreme poverty in our planet by the year 2035. I mean, the trend lines are incredible on our planet. I think we get sucked into fake news a lot that the world's getting worse. Mm -hmm. But the truth is the world is getting ridiculously better. And there's so many reasons why. And we can get faked out on these four-year electoral cycles. But the truth is you, we should be very optimistic about our future. I am very bullish about capital markets, about companies, about efficiencies, about life getting cheaper, faster, and better. I'm very excited about the future, you can tell. And it, and it seems obvious to me that things are getting better, but I just think that the way media hits you 10,000 more times a day with Instagram and Facebook, you feel like like it's not. But but I assure you, it is. Yeah, I think this is a, an amazing place to wrap up. Terrific bull perspective. I, I think I'm certainly going to hang on to a, a lot of what you said versus watching anything on CNN tonight. And <laughs> discourage <laughs> listeners true. to do the same. Mike, in the last minute or so, where can people find out more about you? Wow. I guess you could try to come to one of my talks. You know, I work for Speakers Spotlight and National Speakers Bureau, or I guess you can check out LinkedIn. Sometimes there's videos up. I'm actually kind of private. <laughs> I don't get out <laughs> that much and I run a family office, but you could always find me on LinkedIn. And if you have a business, you could always send me another LinkedIn and we could have a, myself or an associate take a look at it. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking today. Congratulations with everything. Obviously your first company, Diadem, and then, and then Blue Cat and the exit with Blue Cat, 40 under 40 title everything you're doing on the speaking tour, et cetera. It's all awesome. Thanks for coming on. Okay. Thanks for having me. Cheers. All Bye -bye. right. Take care, Mike. E2 is brought to listeners in part by Scriberbase. Visit Scriberbase.com for more info. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. If you like E2, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you consume your audio. Leave us a review. Even become an exclusive supporter of the show. Visit glow.fm slash e2 to do so. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Electric acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage, behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for The, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour. Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women. Electric Acid.